Blessings one and all, and welcome to the Infinite Journey podcast. I'm Paul James Caden, and in today's show, we are going to continue reading from my book, An Angel Came Down. This is a little bit of a longer chapter, so we're going to get right into it. And again, please excuse me if I trip over my words from time to time. I'm reading this off of a Kindle, and uh, I'm also not the greatest public reader in the group. So without further ado, let's get into An Angel Came Down, Chapter 1, The Thorns of Sorrow. The passage of time began to bring many changes to my young life, changes that I never would have desired nor predicted. The genesis of those transformations began when I was nearly four years of age. At that time, my parents moved the family from our isolated home in the country to a new home in the rural area of Middletown, New York. The new residence was a small, one-story house, covered by a cheap brown siding that was literally peeling away from the cinder block structure. Our new residence was slightly bigger than our previous home, yet it was still relatively small in its interior. The days of shadowy visitors in the night had passed away by then, but I still thought about the experiences often. I was still plagued by the feeling of wanting to go home. I didn't understand this feeling because for all intents and purposes, I was home. But I just knew in my heart that beyond the veil of this peculiar world I was living in, there was something grander than the imagination could even fathom. It was about that time when I began to feel that I was different from other people. I somehow felt that I didn't quite fit in with the rest of the world around me. I didn't understand it when people would argue, use foul language, or were unkind to one another. I also didn't grasp why adults just seemed to meander through life like thoughtless zombies. I watched them talk about politics, complain about their jobs, and watch what seemed to be endless hours of television. So much time was wasted on meaningless things, but no one ever spoke about the mysterious world that was beyond the hole in the sky. I later came to the conclusion that perhaps I was the only one who was from that other place. Maybe everyone else was from this world, and I was sent here to live among them for some strange reason. I had the notion that this was why I felt so different and didn't seem to gravitate toward others or their customs and habits. Every so often I would entertain the idea of how I may make contact with those individuals who dumped me into this world. I would wonder how I might go about signal signaling them to tell them to pull me out of this place because it was I wasn't sure that I liked it. 
when the tender age of four finally evolved into five, more changes would seep through the cracks of time. Those changes would rush in like a wave, carrying with them a torrent of confusion, sadness, and disappointment in other people. If I had felt like a stranger in a strange land before, what was about to happen would surely shock and astound my young mind. The first jolt of bewilderment that I received was when I started school. On my very first day of kindergarten, the teacher seemed to take an instant disliking to me. She gave me a cruel tongue lashing for crying and wanting to go home. She proceeded to grab me by the arm and snatch me up out of my seat. I was then hauled to the front of the class and made to sit on a stool in front of all the other kids. I was told that I was a crybaby, and now all of the other students could see what a fool I was. Meanwhile, this same teacher hugged and coddled other children who were weeping and moaning because they too wanted to go home as well. I didn't understand why I wasn't given the same level of compassion as the other boys and girls in the classroom. In my thinking, this seemed to confirm that I was somehow different and didn't fit in with the rest of the people around me. To make matters worse, I got beat up at recess, and another kid stole my cookies at snack time. Thus was the beginning of many tough years in a place we call school. During those stressful school years, life at home began to be filled with its own brand of anxiety. At that particular point in time, my father began to drink quite incessantly. He was the kind of guy who would come home from work angry, just about every night. He would try to wash away his sorrows with a few bottles of beer, and before you knew it, he was under the influence. Many weekends in those days were spent riding around the old country back roads, watching my father tip the bottle and complaining about all of the morons in the world. This would have been bad enough, but at a young age my older brother and I became objects of his inebriated scorn as well. We were called things like worthless, stupid, weird, and lazy. It was also not uncommon to see my father fly into a fit of rage over some small occurrence and go on a rampage throughout the house. He would proceed to break any item that might be in his path, and even put holes in the wall. All this made my mother a fluttering nervous wreck. The only thing she knew to do was to lock my brother and I in our room and tell us to stay out of our father's way. My mother was a ball of anxious energy that you could feel as soon as she entered the room. She never spoke up for herself, nor even tried to halt my father's aggressive behavior. Over time, her life became one gigantic worry about what potential disasters may strike at any given time. One of her fears was that my brother and I would be whisked away by evil kidnappers 
if we were allowed outside alone for even a second. We were hardly ever allowed outdoors, and were confined to our room most of the time. Over a period of time, my brother and I became objects of ridicule by some of the other kids in the neighborhood. We were famous for being the kids that were never allowed outside and were constantly locked in the room by their mother. They mockingly spread from the neighborhood to the school bus and thus added just one more dimension of frustration to life. Mix all of the above ingredients together with a healthy dose of high drama and you get a pretty miserable kid. I began to feel as though I was under attack both at school and at home. Life seemed fragile, and you never knew when someone was going to beat you up, insult you, or fly into a rage and cause upset and damage. I began to feel somewhat lonely, sad, and depressed at that time. So what does a kid do under such conditions? He could talk to someone, but there wasn't really anyone to talk to. Besides all that, my brother and I were raised in a household where you didn't really let your feelings show, bad or good. And you sure as hell didn't say what was on your mind for fear of the scoffing that might follow. Life seemed bleak, and so it didn't take very long for me to start spending copious amounts of time in a world of daydreams. The world of fantasy quickly became my greatest escape. In my imagination, I could be whoever I wanted to be. I had plenty of friends and said whatever was on my mind. Sometimes I would do battle with monsters and save the world. Other times I was a superhero who broke out of school and went out to live a life of happiness and freedom. The world in my mind was a great one, and I visited it often, whether at home or in school. My grades suffered sometimes for this, but I didn't care. I was more content to visit my world of reverie than concentrate on schoolwork or what the teacher was saying. I stayed isolated within my fantasies for a number of years, but every now and then reality would rear its ugly head above my sea of dreams and slap me with the sting of its harshness. I remember when my mother's first cousin, Ted, and his wife Trudy moved next door to us. Ted was your basic macho 1970s hippie type guy with a thick mustache and long hair. Trudy, however, was a somewhat rugged, rugged southern woman who always seemed to wear a look of anger upon her stone-like face. They had two kids that were around me and my brother's age, and so after a while, we had our first playmates. Things seemed to go along pretty smoothly for a while, but then Ted somehow became this egotistical legend in his own mind. He would always talk about how strong he was and what a good-looking man he considered himself to be. He became, he became quite bloated with arrogance and seemed to have a cutting comment about everything. I can't say when it actually began, 
but Ted's comments gradually began to spill over into my life. I soon found myself being called a piece of work, weird, and stupid by someone other than my father. I can recall many times just sitting in the corner, playing and minding my own business. Ted would look at me with hatred in his eyes and shake his head. He would mumble to my father about what an idiot and a piece of work I was. I even caught my father shaking his head in agreement with Ted's words several times. Trudy, on the other hand, was the kind of person who did a lot of talking with the back of her hand. If you belched in her presence and didn't say excuse me, your ears were soon ringing as a mighty swat slammed across the side of your face. One time, when Ted and Trudy were babysitting my brother and I, we were all about to drive into town for some reason or another. Ted and all the other kids were outside by the car. I, however, was in the house with Trudy as she was finishing up a phone call. I asked Trudy, very politely, if I could go outside and join the other kids in the car. The next thing I knew, I was laying on my back on the couch, and the whole left side of my face was completely numb. Trudy had slapped me so hard that it sent me halfway across the room, landing me on the sofa. One day, I protested to my parents that I didn't like to be around Trudy because she was mean. Ted overheard my comments and became furious. Ted insisted that I apologize to him for saying bad things about his wife. I remember being stunned that neither of my parents took my side or inquired about my case. They just yelled at me along with Ted and made me say that I was sorry. As I walked away from the scene of my unjust apology, I heard Ted say that I was the stupidest kid he had ever met. And again, not one word was said by either of my parents. The insults, looks of disgust, and backhands delivered by Ted and Trudy cut deep into my consciousness. I began to wonder if there was something wrong with me. After all, with all of the negative treatment and commentary that seemed to come my way, both at home and school, I began to think that maybe it was for a good reason. The days of Ted and Trudy seemed to go on for an eternity, but in reality, they were short-lived. Sadly, Trudy died of leukemia while only in her 20s. Not long after that, Ted got himself a new lady friend and eventually moved away. My brother and I had lost our playmates, but I didn't lose the hurt and self-hatred that the whole experience had imparted to my young soul. I'd like to say that all of the drama ended there, but it didn't. My father's drinking and fits of rage continued, and school was still a lesson in daily verbal abuse and beatdowns. Then there were other people who would take the place of Ted and Trudy, as the ogres in my life. The ogres would be my cousin Johnny's parents, John Sr., and his wife Maggie. John and Maggie were an interesting couple, 
John Sr. resembled actor Gene Hackman in an obscure kind of way. He used to like to drink with my father and talk about how stupid everyone in the world was. Maggie, on the other hand, was a scrunchy-faced woman with a 1950s hairdo. She used to like sitting at the kitchen table with my mother and talk about sickness, disease, and death. She could go on for hours telling horror stories about who had what dreadful illness and who was dying in her community. If one of us kids got so much as a headache in her presence, she would pull out these big medical books and give us the diagnosis of everything from being too hyper to having the early stages of some form of cancer. I can't say when it began, but John Sr. and Maggie began to zero in on me and label me as a weird kid. I can remember John Sr. Look at me, looking at me like I was a circus sideshow freak and shaking his head. He would take a slug of a slug of his beer and say to my father, that kid is some piece of work. He would say that I was puny and that I probably needed a good ass-kicking to make me a man. I can recall Maggie watching me playing a board game with Johnny Jr. on the floor and shaking her head at me. She would lean over and whisper to my mother, he's so weird. Now, I don't know what was so weird about playing a board game, but I guess to Maggie it seemed quite an alien thing for children to do. I even heard Maggie telling my mother once that I was a funny-looking kid, and my mother said not a word in my defense. Nevertheless, I overheard those remarks and can still remember the surprise and hurt I felt over them. I began to seethe with hatred and anger, not at anyone else, but at myself. Again, I began to think that maybe I was some kind of imbecile that didn't fit in with the rest of the human race. After all, all of these adults couldn't be wrong about what they were saying, could they? All through these events, however, there was one other place of refuge besides that of my own imagination, and that was my grandparents' house. My grandparents lived in a spacious two-story house where there was plenty of room to get away from it all. My brother and I savored the weekends at our grandparents. There was no one drinking, no one giving you the evil eye, and certainly no one called you weird or criticized you. The atmosphere was peaceful at grandma's, and you were always greeted with a smile. Large amounts of cookies, pies, and cakes were always bought in anticipation of your arrival. Not only did I find my grandparents' house more restful than my own home, but one other thing stands out in my mind as well, and that was my earliest introduction to God. I can still recall my grandfather telling me at a young age about heaven and Jesus. I remember my grandmother teaching my brother and I the Lord's Prayer, which we recited every night before going to sleep. 
It was also my grandmother who first told me about guardian angels who watched over all of God's children. I remember thinking about the idea of a guardian angel sounding kind of comforting. But in the face of all of the hard knocks and stress that I usually felt, I was fairly sure that no one was looking out for me. This brief history of the events of my life would not be complete without the mention of my cousin Edith and her husband Bob. Bob and Edith were somewhat of a mismatched couple. Bob was this big, somewhat overweight fellow with glasses who somehow reminded me of Bob Hope when I was a kid. Edith was a short and stocky woman with flyaway brown hair and kind of a hooked nose. Bob and Edith had no children of their own and were my parents' age. At one point in my life, we spent quite a bit of time at their house. I was generally quite peaceful at Bob and Edith's, but over time, Edith and Bob began to dish out a bit of criticism of their own. I can recall sitting in Bob and Edith's living room, playing a game, and Bob shaking his head and telling my father, he's some piece of work. And of course, I overheard cousin Edith whispering to my mother, on more than one occasion, he's such a weird kid. Once again, those old familiar words rose up to haunt me. It added more fuel to the fire and made me think there was something terribly wrong with me. I started to think that perhaps I deserved all of the negative comments and treatments that came my way. I felt that I was an embarrassment to my parents and even to the rest of humanity. Bob and Edith also spent a considerable amount of time with my cousins John and Maggie. As previously stated, Bob and Edith had no children, so they sort of adopted John and Maggie's kids as their own. As you may recall, both John and Maggie had labeled me as quite a freakish child. Yet when it came to the bizarre behavior of their own children, it was completely ignored or justified. As an example of the kind of thing that boggled my mind at a young age, I would like to share the following story about John and Maggie's oldest son, John Jr. At one time, my mother and cousin Edith worked together in a small factory for a clothing company. My mother and cousin were the only two employees, so they basically had the run of the place. Many summer vacations from school were spent going to work with my mother and sitting at an old wooden table drawing or playing board games. One day, my cousin Edith brought Johnny to the factory. She said she, she did this so that my brother and I could spend some time with him. I don't recall many of the events that took place that day, but one instance does stand out in my mind. I remember having to go to the bathroom, and so cu Cousin Johnny said that he had to go too. 
So off we went down a set of old wooden steps that led into the dark, dank basement of the factory where the bathroom was located. Once there, you had to go inside this thing that looked like a closet with a toilet inside of it. I had gotten there first and went into the room and shut the door. As I began to relieve myself, I was suddenly shocked by a yellow stream that came hissing through the crack of the bathroom door. I quickly got myself together and stepped outside the tiny room to see what was going on. To my surprise, I found Cousin Johnny standing in the middle of the basement, laughing and urinating on everything around him. He even tried to urinate on me as I emerged from the stall. I don't know where this kid held it all, but he was peeing a river all over the place. It wasn't until a day or two later when my brother and I went into the factory again. At that time, Cousin Edith began to drill us with a face twisted in anger about what the hell was all over the basement floor. As a kid, I wasn't a fink, and I never told on anybody, but at this moment I was not going to take the blame for someone else's deed, and so I told the whole story. But when my cousin Edith found out that it was urine on the floor, and that it was sweet little Johnny who had done it, her countenance immediately softened, and she began to say how poor little Johnny must have had to go awfully bad to do such a thing. Cousin Edith cleaned up the urine, and not another word was ever said about it. The life of Johnny was filled with many such stories, and no one ever said a cross word to the boy. They either laughed it off as a joke, or said he probably had a good reason for doing what he did. Looking back, the story is certainly a humorous one in its own right, but at the time the events had occurred, it was very confusing and even a little hurtful to see adults behaving in such an odd manner. My opinions of myself as a child was so low that I believed I didn't have any right to ask anything of anyone. I remember one weekend when my father forced the family to go to an air show in New Jersey in the middle of a heat wave. It was so hot on that day that people were dropping like flies as they sat in an open field trying to watch the airborne acrobats. Unfortunately, on that day, I was one of the victims of the searing heat. We had no sunblock, umbrella, or shelter, and halfway through the show, I was burnt to a crisp. I was weak, dehydrated, from a lack of fluids, and on the verge of passing out. My mother suggested that my father drive us home because the heat was making me sick. But once in the car, my father cursed, swore, and punched the dashboard. He railed that he was mad as hell because he was going to miss the rest of the air show. Needless to say, we ended up staying for the rest of the show, and I lay on a blanket in a nearby first aid station, sipping cups of water. After being exposed to the heat for such a long time, I was left with sun poisoning 
a painful burn, and blisters on my arms and mouth. Yet I did not believe that I had a right to complain because I was a rotten kid who would just ruin everyone's good time. Through the years, life seemed to be a battlefield. At home, I was still belittled and called worthless and stupid. At school, I was just the total outcast. My mother used to dress me in bright polyester pants with a shirt or sweater to match. These shirts and sweaters usually had some outlandish 70s design printed on them. Looking back at the old school pictures, I now see that these designs look little more than a mass of psychedelic scribbles. These frightful clothes and the bad Pat Boone haircut that I sported made me an object of disdain among my fellow students. All the other kids were wearing blue jeans and normal-looking shirts to match, while I roamed the halls looking like a poor man's Christmas tree. From kindergarten to grade six, I was called names, beat up, and given odd looks. Even some of the teachers would do a double-take when they saw me come to school clad in such preposterous garments. I can recall one time when a fellow student and his pals insulted the way I dressed so badly that the teacher gave the whole class a speech about not picking on those who may be less fortunate. I remember doodling on my notebook and only halfway listening to the teacher's comments. But when I looked up, I noticed that every eye in the class was fastened on me. Some of those eyes were even moistened with sympathetic tears, including the teacher and the kid who had been picking on me. My family was not as poor as the teacher perhaps made out, but as one can imagine, I felt quite the spectacle in English class that day. Another incident that baffled my mind in my early years, when I was in the second grade. At that time, my brother and I made our first friend in our own little neighborhood. Our new friend was this kid named Stu, who rode the bus, who rode the same bus as we did. Stu was by all count by all accounts a nerd. He sported a crew cut and wore glasses that were as thick as Coke bottles. He very much reminded my brother and me of Poindexter on the old Felix the Cat cartoons, and so we called him Poinzy. Stu always threatened to hit us with his Superman lunchbox, but he never did follow through with his threats. Eventually, we discovered that Stu was really into comic books and superheroes. My brother and I were superhero freaks, so it didn't take us long to begin taking, talking with Stu in a more friendly manner and trading comic books with him. We eventually discovered that Stu lived right across the street from us. So my brother and I began to invite him over to play many hours of superhero games. In turn, he invited us to his house for the same. Things went pretty well for a while, but soon something began to surface 
in stew that I didn't find very nice. He began to make fun of just about everything that you did. He would cut you down for things like the way you would walk, the way you would comb your hair, and even the way in which you chose to spend your time. There soon came the day when you could scarcely say or do anything around Stu that was not met with insults and a bunch of homophobic name-calling. My brother and I remained friends with Stu despite his ever-growing loud personality. Maybe it was because, once in a while, he was still quite pleasant to be around. After all, he wasn't the worst kid in the world, perhaps just a little misled. Over time, it was discovered where Stu's vicious little personality had come from. It became quite apparent that the almost constant criticism and insults were learned behavior. As my brother and I grew more familiar with Stu's family, we saw that they lived like a pack of wolves that almost continually devoured one another. Insults were traded at the dinner table, at family television time, and all throughout the day as members of the household would come face to face with each other. Stu had two older sisters and a brother, who after a while began to hurl unkind remarks at me and my brother as well. They called us wimps, retards, faggots, and you guessed it, weird. Sometimes Stu would just laugh at his older siblings when they would bust on my brother and I. Other times he would join in, or divulge some secret matter that was just to be among friends and embarrass you even more. For some reason, this seemed quite a normal way to live to Stu and his family. The whole incident with Stu and his family marked my thinking at a very early age. You could say that it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I began to view the world as a very cruel place and figured that real love and acceptance did not exist. I adopted the opinion that if family members, schoolmates, and friends treated one another in such a brusque manner, then there was no hope in the world for any of us. After all, wasn't love supposed to be the supreme law that all people were to live by? If everyone threw that love out of the window, then life was a sad and empty thing for the entire human race. I didn't understand how the grown-up people around me could hurt each other's feelings and be so very hateful. I didn't understand how children could emulate some of those behaviors and why the world had to be this way. It all seemed very dismal and alien to me, and at that time, I withdrew all trust from everyone. I may have conversed politely enough with others and laughed and joked at times, but for the most part, I lived in a shell. Every so often, though, life seemed to be a little kinder and lighter. At those moments, I thought perhaps that maybe things would turn around for the better.
I would hold the feeling of hope within myself and played with the notion that perhaps the world wasn't such a cruel place. But no sooner would I entertain such thoughts when an ugly event would transpire, dashing all my hopes to pieces. I can recall talking to God many times in my mind back then. I would ask him why people were so hurtful and ask him to make it so that people wouldn't do such things anymore. This was my almost constant prayer to God for more years than I can remember. Thus were the days of my childhood, gray and black with a splash of color here and there. I suppose it wasn't all bad all the time, but life's events were dismal enough to turn me into a very melancholy child. There were many voices and faces that rose up over the years to mock me like tormenting spirits. They told me that I was stupid, worthless, and weird, and I bought into it. I can recall a time when I couldn't stand to look at my own reflection in the mirror. I remember looking at myself in the silvery surface and thinking, there's the ugly weird kid. I loathed myself. I even detested the way I looked. I hated my flat brown hair, my pudgy body, and my ugly clothes. I remember glaring at my reflection with such disgust that it would actually send me spiraling into an anxiety attack. I didn't know back then what an anxiety attack was, so when I first experienced that surreal, detached feeling, I thought I was dying. At those times, my thoughts would drift back to Maggie and her medical books and her obsession with sickness and disease. I thought perhaps that Maggie had been right when she diagnosed me with some fatal illness in the past. Life continued this grueling course year after year. Over time, I began to be weighed down with far more anxiety than a child at that age could handle. There seemed to be no rest for my mind, and my stomach was tied in constant sickening knots. But then, one day, literally out of the blue, something very strange happened that would alter my life greatly in the years to come. This is the end of chapter one of An Angel Came Down, The Thorns of Sorrow. I hope you enjoyed listening, and uh, the story gets uh, strange and interesting from here, so I hope you continue to listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time here on the Infinite Journey Podcast.